Welcome back to Immortal X Friends, a conversation podcast about the X-Men, comics, pop culture, and today, for its long-awaited debut, a conversation podcast about the issue that we were so excited about, that we made our name about, and now we're finally getting to it, Immortal X-Men number one. I am Cody. What's up? I'm Riley. And we are very excited to talk to you about this issue uh, that officially kicked off the Destiny of X that we are... Uh, getting to, I think a little, a little delayed, more delayed than we thought it was going to. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, going to end up being our fourth episode, and we're just, we're just now talking about it. But uh, I think we both needed time to sit with this book. Yeah, this is such a fun book to read, um, and with all the anticipation that we had coming up to it, it was definitely a book we needed to sit with for a little minute before we jump into yeah. a discussion about it. Anticipation's putting it lightly. It's the first time, I mean, we, we named our podcast after the idea of, of this book and the excitement for it. Um, and Riley, at the top of your head, the top of your heart, did this book deliver? It delivered in so many ways. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't really know. Like, now that I've read the book, if you would ask me, like, what did you think was going to happen in this book? I don't know that I would have had a clear answer for you. I think um, my best guess would have been that it would be setting up a lot of a lot of future plot points and stuff. And it certainly does that. But I don't think that there were any particular story beats that I expected mm-hmm. to come in this uh, in this issue. I thought that there were some things that would definitely deserve some addressing, but I don't think that I could have anticipated any of the big major things that uh, this this issue introduces in terms of story beats. So this this issue in in a lot of ways blew me away because of the directions that Gillen is deciding to take with this book. Yeah, I think this one uh, met and exceeded our anticipation and expectations quite a bit. Uh, so we are talking about Immortal X-Men number one. Uh, written by Karen Gillan, artist Lucas Wernick, uh, colors by David Curiel, and letters by uh, Clayton Cowles, and obviously uh, the the design for all of the Destiny of the X books done by the wonderful uh, Tom Muller. So uh, yeah, we we were both really excited for that, and and dove right in. We've talked a lot. Uh, it was announced right around the time that Jonathan Hickman announced that he was leaving. That Karen Gillan was coming back to write X-Men, uh, which is very exciting because the last time that they wrote uh, was right before um, and during Avengers versus X-Men. And then since then, they've gone on to do quite a bit of creator-owned work um, immediately following the Marvel Now. That's when they took over Young Avengers uh, while also simultaneously working on Wicked and Divine. And so I I think I've entered in, I'm, I've been pretty familiar with Gillen's creator-owned work. Uh, I think it has been... What, what, is, what was your relationship with Gillen before entering into uh, the Destiny of X, Riley? Um, I don't think that I had a very... Um, well, I guess what I would say is I did read all of Gillen's X-Men run. I believe all of Gillen's X-Men run uh, probably about a year ago now. Um, and I remember enjoying it. I remember it standing out to me as I just consumed a huge amount of comics in, in the span of a year. Um and the only thing that I've really known about Gillen is that much of Gillen's work is just highly praised by people who, who yeah. read a lot of comics. Um, any of the, the forums or the Facebook groups or whatever that um, I've kind of been reading things on have always had really high praise of the things that Gillen does. So um, when 
Immortal X-Men as a book was announced, it was really exciting that this was going to be something, the Quiet Council book, like finally we've kind of talked about wanting this this book in particular, like what is the Quiet Council doing? Um, can we have a focus on them and the members and how the members interact with each other um, and how they play nice? Um, the political intrigue, I think this this whole book is really interesting, but then I think seeing how people were reacting to finding out that Gillen was going to be the author of this particular book um, was just really exciting and kind of added some gas on that fire um, that not only are we finally getting this book, but we're also getting this, this writer, which yeah. is, which is really fun um, for a, you know, comic book novice, I suppose uh, that was a really cool thing for me to see that so many people were extra excited just seeing who was going to be writing it. Gillen has been a big part of my adult comics diet. Um, I first uh, learned about them in, in college when reading, actually, uh, their first issue on uh, Uncanny, X-Men number one. Um, I was really excited for that event, and I remember picking up that and Jason Aaron's uh, Wolverine and the X-Men number one at my like local college comic shop. Um, and reading it then, falling off, but... Uh, in adulthood really really um getting into wicked and divine um and that's a that is a series that i'm i actually I, we should do a deep dive on that probably this summer uh, i'm excited to see your take on it and so uh between wicked and divine and his other creator and work die i was so excited to hear that he was coming back to x-men especially just dealing with um a lot of the concepts of immortality and cycles and archetypes and uh hidden agendas and not just that but character perspective and point of view issues that made me very very thrilled to see him tackling probably like 12 of now i can confidently say like 12 of my favorite x-men if not comic book characters in general who were on the quiet council yeah um and then just being absolutely uh, thrilled and entranced with his work on Immortals, or not Immortals, sorry, Eternals currently, mm, yeah. and just being very, very, very excited that he is now writing probably two of my favorite my favorite books um, right. that are out. And there's only been one issue of Immortal X-Men, there's only been about ten issues of Eternals, but both of those are are, are, are currently my favorite, my favorite books that I'm looking forward to every week. Cool. Well, I guess before we jump into um, talking about the issue, talking about particular plot points that yeah. we enjoyed or, or things like that, um, we should kind of start with the lead up to this issue. Yes. Um, so uh, if you kind of rewind a few months, um, we started to find out about the line of books that were going to be coming out. They started releasing um, promotional material for Destiny of X and all of the different titles that were going to be involved. But the other thing that they released a few months back that kind of got us starting to talk about these books um, was the Mark Brooks cover mm -hmm. um, that is very reminiscent of The Last Supper. Yep. Um, so I wonder if you could kind of start us off by talking about when you first saw the, the cover art that was going to be coming out for issue number one, um, what were the things that popped out to you? What did you notice about it? And how did that kind of start your anticipation for Destiny of X? I remember the first thing that you and I were texting about this cover, besides the very obvious um, Arakan mutant mm -hmm. um, behind Mystique, was the fact that there was no Magneto on it. Right. Uh, his helmet is, is central in the Christ spot. Um, and I think that was what you and I instantly <laughs> glommed onto. Mm -hmm. We're like, 
Magneto's gone, and a Grim Reaper is on the page. Like, right. Lady Death is on the page. No one is there. There's not currently the mutant messiah. And looking at it now, like, it's pretty clear. I think you look at that page, like, you see the phoenix on it. Mm-hmm. You see, um, spoiler alert, obviously, for, for Immortal X-Men number one, if you were listening to it. The, the spoiler warning's right here. We'll give you a chance to go read it and come back in three, two, one. Obviously, it is now in reference to the mutant messiah, Hope mm-hmm. Summers. Yeah. Um, it's a key figure from Avengers versus X-Men, a character that I think both you and I have a pretty soft spot for. Yeah. Um, between uh, Messiah Complex and Second Coming. Um, love, love, love Hope Summers. So seeing her being brought back into it, she's obviously been a key member of the five during this Krakoan era. Mm-hmm. But that that is who's missing. That is who's missing in the Jesus Christ uh, spot on this. And Jesus Christ himself gets a shout out in mm. this issue it's such a fun <laughs> moment as as a controversial uh, throwaway line from exodus uh calling him the the nazarene mutant but we have characters all over and in some of the different positions uh i think you can see i, I think xavier i think i looked it up he's in the doubting thomas mm. uh position uh and yeah there's, there's just there's just a lot going on on that cover what are some things that you noticed riley um, well, I, what I appreciated about this cover so much was that it kind of gives you hints that it's this is not going to be a book about the council members getting along really well. That <laughs> yes. There's going to be a lot of um, intense feelings on different positions. And um, I also noticed that there's so many little Easter egg details yeah. that were thrown in. And maybe those things are important and maybe they were just for, you know, the cover being something that's just really fun to look at. Um, but you've got a pair of red sunglasses sitting on the table. Um, you have Cyclops's visor on the floor along with uh, Marvel Girl's helmet thing, helmet yeah. face gear. Um, there's so many little things that you can see. Um, a chalice with some red liquid running down the table. and um, There's just so many little fine details for you to notice. Uh, along with the death character that you mentioned holding an hourglass that is almost out of time. Um, so this being the you know quote unquote first issue post inferno and seeing that inferno is kind of the end of this stage of the Kirkoan era seeing that in this first promotional material for the upcoming book there is a a death-like character holding an hourglass that is running out of time um just a, a really interesting choice one that kind of gives you this anticipation of like something big is about to happen and we don't really know what we don't know and it's pretty ominous for death to appear on the cover of something right. called immortal mm-hmm. x-men 2 i did also notice that um you know when when we got this promotional material with all of these different books we're getting legion of x mm-hmm. this time around we're getting x-men red this time around you know we had our theories what is this book going to be about what is this book going to be about um so having already talked about the fact that there is going to be a book called x-men red that is likely at that point we, yeah. we didn't know anything but we were likely dealing with with the Planet mars Arako. Means, yeah um, and all of the Iraqi mu- mutants, seeing that some of them are still involved in this image was really interesting to me that even though maybe they're not central characters, that this is a quiet council mm-hmm. book, that maybe they still have some part to play that they're 
looming over the council's choices, something like that. So I just, I loved the fact that not only does this reference uh, an image that's very well known, um, but it also has so many different avenues to take. And knowing that many cover images are, you know, are there to excite you, but also kind of to subvert what's happening. Um, Seeing that this particular art has so many different avenues that it could be referencing or, or hinting at. I think it's just a really exciting thing. It's um, it's such a cool image. I'm I'm very I'm excited with how busy it is and yeah. there's so much from this first issue that didn't even touch on everything that's there. Uh so I'm I'm just I'm looking forward to seeing especially how the Araka mutants feed into it. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's probably the biggest one. I think there's definitely the, you know, Cyclops and Marvel Girl who are currently they're the, they're the heart of the actual X-Men team. Mm-hmm them being discarded on the ground yeah uh in the same way that magneto's helmet is just kind of discarded on the table it i do not have high hopes for the council's interactions with the main x-men team Mm -hmm. operating out of the treehouse which i think is just so exciting for things to come yeah but for our listeners um i think (laughs) we should probably talk about who's on the council um so the quiet council existing um, and being created at the beginning of uh, Hickman's run during House of X. Uh, basically, there are four sides to the council. There's the autumn, summer, spring, and winter seats. Um, each of these sides uh, representing a different phase um, in mutant culture and mutant society. Um, and essentially, uh, three figures for each of the seats. Uh, so in autumn, we have Professor X, Magneto, uh, and originally Apocalypse, before he left. My boy. Uh, and your boy Apocalypse. In summer, we have Nightcrawler, Storm, now Colossus, originally Jean Grey. Uh, in spring, it's the three members of the Hellfire Trading Company, Emma Frost, Sebastian Shaw, and Kate Pride. And winter is our, our villain seats of Exodus, Mr. Sinister, and Mystique. Uh, so this issue opens up with a very exciting, um, I think uh, there's there's a prologue that I'm, we'll talk about a little bit later. But once the actual quiet council of it opens up, it is with the announcement that Magneto is stepping down. Magneto is leaving the quiet council. He is going to retire on Mars. We talked quite a bit about that in our um, our X Men Red uh, episode and what that looks like. Uh, but I was I was not expecting that. I was not expecting uh, Magneto to leave. He has been such a central figure of this entire era and kind of truly the hero of of Krakoa and the figurehead. And he's had a little bit of a fall from grace. Uh, during trial of Magneto and with all the information coming out of Inferno, but how did how did you feel about Magneto leaving? Um, I definitely agree that it was an unexpected choice for this to happen in the first several pages. You know, in the first page after the prologue. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that I think about this choice in hindsight, I think it was just it's the perfect catalyst for it this really book is. being what a trigger point to. You know, this character who's been next to Xavier this entire time with all of the choices that they've made, uh, whether those were good or morally gray or, or what have you, having one of the the founders, the, the leaders of Krakoa in the first page, so to speak, say, I'm stepping down and I'm leaving. Not only is he just kind of backing down from the council, but he's leaving Krakoa. Yeah. Um, so I definitely think that this was a really bold choice of like, hey, this is a, a massive 
choice by a central character that's going to kind of be the catalyst for a lot of argument, for a lot of debate uh, with the other council members. Um, I think it's a really fun choice that just is a huge spark for what this book is going to be. It's such a good inciting incident, and it obviously it leads to the drama that unfolds over the next several pages because the rest of the issue is now um, the interview, the discussion, the debate, and then the eventual decision of who mm -hmm. will fulfill Magneto's seat. Um, but in a more meta way, it also truly feels like Hickman leaving. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I realized that until kind of my second reading of through this, where it is, it, it is one of the main architects stepping down and moving on. But I think Gillen does such a good job of showing that these characters and this nation, they're, it's still in good hands. It's still right. in complicated hands. And even though someone moves on, um, whether that was planned or not, or if this was part of Hickman's big, big master plan, I, I think that it was really cool to me that the first main book following one of the the architect leaving featured one of the two masterminds stepping down i thought that was a brilliant uh and kind of metaphorical move yeah i think it's a really cool choice um as you see magneto make his his uh announcement to the rest of the council um you get each of the characters with moments of how they're responding to this news whether that's sebastian shaw just like slightly amused by this but just kind of in his you know I don't know, contemptual way for all of the other cast members in this issue. Uh, Emma Frost being just kind of like smug about it. It's, you know, what I enjoyed about the following pages is that every one of the council members has a reaction based on their relationship to Magneto or the things that their character has been going through or what that those characters centrally believe to be to be right or just or whatever it might be. What I think is cool about this is that as soon as we get that that spark moment where Magneto launches into his announcement, all of a sudden, all of the other cast members get a moment where you can kind of read what their reaction to this is going to be. Um, and I think that's just a really cool choice that even though there is an angle that this issue is taking, there is a, I guess, a central character, mm -hmm. you kind of spin around the room and kind of see the viewpoint of each of the other cast members. That central character thing, it's probably a good time to mention that the the point of view character, the central character for this issue is Mr. Sinister. Mm -hmm. It's and so all of these panels that Riley's describing, they're they're dialogue free. They're all just done with caption boxes of what Mr. Sinister is thinking. Mm -hmm. So it's a really great first issue in the sense that if you were not reading, which I do not know who is picking up Immortal X Men after not reading uh, at least Inferno and House of X. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's giving you a rundown on where everyone is at. Yeah. And I think that was such a good way where you and I both walked away saying like, hey, I am actually really excited to see what Kate Pride is up to in Marauders. Mm -hmm. Or man, like now I want to see what's going on with Russia and Colossus or, or Nightcrawler and Legion of X coming up mm -hmm. in a way where we were kind of a little um, dismissive of after... Uh, deaths of Wolverine, mm -hmm. and so wait, leave it, leave it to Mister Sinister and narration. Um, it's extremely funny too. It's I know, so I know, we read it together, but we were both uh, chuckling quite a bit. Uh, Sinister's monologuing on each of the characters, uh, and then there's this brilliant panel where he's sizing up everyone, and then he, his own reaction is extremely overdramatic and mm -hmm. overacted because um, he's trying to play a part. Uh, this this issue 
Uh, and we'll talk about the prologue. I guess we can talk about it now. It opens up in France uh, in 1919, mm-hmm. and it is uh, a callback to our, our favorite pages from House of X and Powers of X with uh, Sinister sitting on a park bench and Irene Adler, Destiny, coming over and, and sharing a secret with him, obviously yeah. referencing the pages where uh, Moira and Xavier talk about the dream. And most recently in Riley's favorite page ever where Moira says, uh, F your dream, Charles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we're, uh, we're seeing a callback to that. And it, it looks like at least one of the central conflicts of this book is going to be Sinister versus Mystique. Or yeah. not, not Sinister versus Destiny. Versus Destiny. And, and, uh, and we'll talk a little bit later about how Sinister has his own way of seeing the future. Yeah. While, while Destiny does, but kind of these these different visions of what of what the nation can be and what Krakoa can be. So a few things that I noticed about this prologue as we jumped into this, um, not only like you mentioned that there are direct uh, there are direct parallels with some older material with the way that the art is designed, but there were a few things in here that that stood out to me. The first being that. Um, you know, this is the first issue post Inferno. A lot of the um, a lot of the plot points came to a head in those issues, and now we're kind of seeing what the aftermath is going to be. Um, and underlying all of the the books that we've been reading so far has been this tension with Moira, and Moira exists in her no place. Um, how is she going to react to these things, especially as Destiny is resurrected against her specific direct wishes? Um, how is everyone else going to react when they realize that Moira is a mutant, that she has all of these reincarnations, that she has all these lives that she's lived, all this stuff. This has been this underlying tension that's yeah. existed since House and Powers. Um, and now that Inferno is over, we were kind of left wondering now, where is this tension going to be? What's exist? that new tension going to be? Um, and we, we get it. In a couple of ways, I think, and and one of the first ways is that as they're speaking together on this park bench in this prologue, um, Sinister is referencing uh, them being in a concert hall together and listening to this this work of classical music, and uh, and Destiny basically having a fit, having some kind of an episode. Um, and then he, he says the line, whatever was it about Mr. Elgar's Nimrod that so disturbed you? And as the reader, knowing what, knowing who Nimrod is, knowing how this character is played into all of these central conflicts, and knowing that he is such a threat looming over this era of, of the X-Men books, it was so fun to notice that in the first couple of pages of this book like Nimrod is still existing as this massive threat it's he's still there he is he is now it is so fun how a big bulky boy robot named Nimrod has become the scariest threat Mm -hmm. to to these powerhouses yeah and I I love it so much I think the other thing that's important to note about this this prologue is that um as we see them discussing things together, uh, Irene whispers something in Sinister's ear, and you think that it's just going to be something that that just changes how Sinister speaks to her, or just like this big realization moment or something. But then, as you turn the page, you you see Mister Sinister begin to bleed out of his eyes and fall <laughs> on the ground, yeah. and 
So obviously there's some massive thing and we aren't given what that secret is. What do you think it is? I have no idea. What could be bad enough to literally make Sinister like collapse, bleed out of his eyes and like die on the floor? Like, I, I don't know what it could be. So I, I have maybe one theory, but we can talk about that once we get close to the, uh, the end. Cause I think okay. there's a big reveal that we want to talk about, but I'm curious if this, if this is, if this event is happening a little further down than yeah. it might seem. Um, what I appreciate so much about these pages is that it sets up underlying tensions so that you know that something is there in the background. You're not sure when exactly it's going to pop up again, but my, my worry about this era before reading this issue was that, you know, I, I loved so much that there were these things that were happening in the background and you're not sure when they're going to pop up again and be important and kind of become this massive threat for this world. But then in the first few issues, we get these new tensions that there is something happening that um, that Irene knows Nimrod is, is a thing, that there is this secret that she yeah. wouldn't even reveal to her wife when asked. There's just a bunch of tensions lying under, under the surface in a way, and I appreciate that so much. Are you more excited about X-Men Red's Storm versus Brand setup or about Sinister versus Destiny? Um, I would say Sinister versus Destiny. I that's, think that's your showdown of 2022. I think so. Okay. Um, I have just been so captivated by the Quiet Council members yeah. and with all of the setup, with how these characters are going to interact with Destiny looming. You know, we read X Men, X Men issue six, I think. Yeah. Hickman's X Men issue six, um, where she says, you know, at, when this time comes, remember these words, bring me back, and then we read months of issues when it finally comes back to be to be crucial in the inferno issues and all of those all of those plot threads just kept me so interested and yeah. in, in waiting for that to become relevant again um so i think my anticipation is definitely towards this so with mine too i i think that that is that this is one of the best matchups to have been imagined mm. but with that x-men 6 brings up a good point where uh destiny tells mystique burn it down mm -hmm. and obviously we got inferno do you feel in your own definition of burn it down do you feel like mystique and destiny have successfully burnt it down yet or do you feel like we're just beginning to see the beginning of the burn it down i think we're just beginning to see i think it, so honestly. too yeah. yeah i i think that knowing how much hate and contempt for charles especially that mystique has I don't think that this is over. I, I don't, don't think, think so that either. they've gotten closure to this, especially Mystique. Yeah. Um, and we know that Mystique had a role to play in Lives and Deaths of Wolverine, and, and there was some Moira versus Mystique intrigue in those books, but I don't think that now that Destiny's returned, I don't think that Mystique is just like, all right, I'm good now. Like, I got what I wanted. Like, I still think that she's got some things. That, I completely agree. Um, I do not think she is done. I feel like, if anything, Inferno and even Lives and Deaths Wolverine was just the beginning of the match. I think so. so they're they're going to play nice, perhaps, as they have their own agendas on the yeah. Quiet Council, but I, I certainly don't think that it's, it's over. And that yeah. is a great segue Riley because speaking of everyone's agendas mm -hmm. uh, we I think we should talk about some secrets yeah uh, so in uh, House and Powers uh, 
there are several pages that then popped up again in X-Men and Hellions and a few others uh, called Sinister Secrets, where our, our favorite fancy lad with the cape, uh, Mr. Sinister, has... Plumage. Has, has, he would plumage, sorry, plumage. plumage. Yeah. Um, and then he would want my own. Yeah. Uh, I'm not wearing a cape right now, for the record. I should... I don't have my special podcasting mm-hmm. cape yet, but that would be some good merch. Maybe. Mortal, Mortal X Friends mm-hmm. capes. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, so Sinister Secrets has been rebranded uh, about midway through the book as Everyone's Secrets. Um, and this breaks down some some fun secrets, not just for Immortal X-Men, but I think for just kind of the X-Men line in general. Yeah. Um, where they rank who knows it. Uh, so some are known only to the Quiet Council, known to all mutants but not humans, known only to the mutants involved, or then not known. And so uh, you and I had a bit of a debate about this over does Mr. Sinister know all of this or mm-hmm. is it honest about who knows what? Um, and there's some pretty big ones in regards to uh, Orcus actually being run by AI, mm-hmm. uh, Omega Sentinel and Nimrod and not the humans like they think they are, mm-hmm. um, Brand collaborating with them, uh, the mutants knowing that they always lose. So it's just not really certain on who knows everything. Yeah. Uh, but there's some exciting teases in there um, that it's it's fun seeing everything reckoned with on this page. Yeah. And, you know, this, this page, it, it does a few things. It just kind of um, refreshes the reader as to who knows what things, what tensions are underlying and, and things like that. But another thing is that it kind of it, it pops up that debate where we aren't super sure does Sinister know everything that's happening on this page or is it just laid out in such a way that it looks like a Sinister secret mm-hmm. page. Um, but we can't definitively say one way or the other based on what we see in this issue if all of the things listed here are things that Sinister knows or if it's just you know the way that the design you know, ended up being in this page. Um, but if it turns out that Sinister does know all of these things, there's some juicy ones, you know, he would be one of the only people that knows that Agent Brand is collaborating with Orcus. That's a pretty massive that's thing a, that's for a Sinister huge to know. Um, and so that that's another source of tension. And I really love the way that this book starts to play with all of these plot threads that you're just not sure where it's going to go but it's yeah. there and it's just lying in wait and i think what's so exciting is then you flip the next page and instantly after you learn that abigail brand is collaborating with orcus mm-hmm. she is she is featured central on the page as one of the many candidates vying mm-hmm. for the council seat yeah there and she is with a job interview and it's it's so great um this this page uh the next few pages start to break down some of the different uh, people who are vying for these positions mm-hmm. uh, the council debates why or why not they would be good choices uh, there are some uh, individuals from some other books that have some good possibly options uh, mm-hmm. we see uh, Angel and Monet from uh, X-Core obviously they're running the business side of Mutant Dumb they might be a good voice on the council I think that could have been argued be. um, Gorgon one of the oldest mutants who I I do really like how Gorgon we still don't know if he is all there Mm -hmm. after Ten of Swords but he still thinks he would be a great fit which is extremely fun Um, we have Gabriel Summers who we got to see in uh, X-Men Red and then we have the the, we're not going to talk about X-Force today but brief spoilers for X-Force we have the most corrupt 
dictator waiting to happen power couple of Abigail Brand and Beast mm-hmm. vying for positions. Um, and also just as justified, if not more, than than Warren and Monet in regards to you're leading the mutant space program and you're leading the mutant CIA. They are both corrupt as hell. Yeah. Um, and it should not be in any consideration. Uh, no. But it's also really fun. Uh, when Gillen first started writing X-Men, uh, they wrote uh, Sword. They wrote the first Sword miniseries, and mm-hmm. that featured pretty heavily Beast and Brand. So yeah. I'm excited. I know one of my hopes and yours for the for the Destiny of X era is that we were going to see more Brand yeah. power plays. And so seeing her get a lot of frequent play mm-hmm. in, in these past two issues of Red and Immortal and in X-Force makes me very excited for... I think there's a lot of brand on the horizon yeah she's such a fun character it's gonna be fun to see where she goes how do you feel about some of these candidates um i feel pretty good about some of these candidates i mean gorgon had so many fun things happening and ten of swords and it would it would be so much fun to see more um penance is a huge highlight from house and powers uh being on the first mission up yeah in, up on uh at the the Orcus Forge and stuff like that. So, I mean, so many of these characters, it's really fun to see, you know, um, Beast has been up to some really shady stuff in uh, in some of the other books of the X line. So it might be fun to have Beast on the council knowing, you know, what an absolute blank he is right (laughs) now. Just a monster, Um, yeah. And I love that this issue even references that with K-Pride literally saying, Hank used to be fun, remember that? I don't know. It, it could be really intriguing to have someone who's just so, you know, if if Charles has been arguably a morally gray character for the last few years of X-Books, well, then what would you call Beast? You know, he's so much worse. So I don't know. It, it could have been fun. But ultimately, I think we were both really excited with the choice that that Gillen decided to go with for this empty seat. So we are extremely excited for this choice. And I know we mentioned it at the beginning. Uh, but uh, Hope Summers uh, oh. Hope 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 Summers accepts the position after a wonderfully weird talk with Exodus yeah. who is all about being the the grand pope of yeah. the first church of Hope Summers and the five oh, I love it so much uh, I, okay so first of all I, I feel like I should say like I, I am so intrigued by Exodus for yeah. a, a bunch of reasons. First is that Sinister literally says something about, like, I'm, like, petrified of Exodus. Like, okay, what is it about Exodus that makes Sinister, like, crap his pants? Like, I'm really excited about that. But another thing is just some of these, like, references as Hope and Exodus are talking about this is just it's so fun. Do you want to do the honors, this... Riley, of reading of reading the quote? that I think you and I are both referencing. I uh, I just love it so much. He So he starts by calling Hope the Messiah, the mutant Messiah. Um, the Holy Spirit came upon you, and Hope is trying to, like, brush these things off. You know, like, dude... And when I he's don't... talking about the Holy Spirit, he's talking about the Phoenix and then, <laughs> coming onto her. Yes. And then you get a moment where Exodus says... The Nazarene mutant inspired a church among the humans by raising a couple from the dead. I just watched you beat that in the last five minutes. <laughs> what it's, a quote. It's it's such a quote. It's times like this where I, I do think back to my like 
my church upbringing and where I would have been with myself if I read this line at 13 mm-hmm. in a book and would have been like, my parents cannot find this book. Right. This is not, a, I remember reading, I think when I first read uh, Morrison's new X-Men was at like 13 or 14. And even then I felt like I had to hide that book mm-hmm. under the covers because of some of Emma Frost's outfits. Sure. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's but, but this alone would have, been, <laughs> this would have been a moment where I'm like, Oh my gosh, like the X-Men don't believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. but they do, they do. Yeah. And, just the assertion that Jesus Christ is a mutant is, <laughs> is is so amusing. It's it's so good. It's such good. It's such good comics writing. Um, and I I just it, it references that image that we've mm-hmm. been talking about the whole time. And I think once we were reading that, we realized where this was going. Yeah. And I think the excitement of delving into a council and mutant faith mm-hmm. and all all that that has the potential to bring is. I think it's exciting for both of us. Yeah. To speak nothing of the fact that you and I are excited about the five being more central to everything. Um, The five being such, if not one of the most crucial aspects of this entire era. Has still been one of the least explored. Yeah. Yeah. And the five show up and they're these rock stars. Like the entire nation knows who they are. They are, are praised and thanked by the entire mass population. But the five don't really show up that often. And when they do, it's it's brief in, in service of yeah. whatever character is being resurrected, you know? And that's fine. But having existed now for a couple of years and not have had a, a book that kind of centralizes on the five and how these characters operate together, um, this is another one of those avenues that I didn't realize Immortal X-Men could be diving into, but I'm so glad that it is. I want to see more of Hope and... And by extension, the other members of the five. I completely agree. So after we get our hope introduction, we get to see the other, I guess the runner-up for mm-hmm. the seat on the council. So if hope is the Messiah, we get to see the literal devil herself. Mm-hmm. Um, Celine, one of the oldest mutants, uh, uh, basically a vampire, magic, all of that. Uh, and it is, it is so shocking that Celine is not already in the pit mm-hmm. for a variety of crimes. Uh, but she does make a great point about how you may have filled Apocalypse's seat, but you still have no one on this council that understands mutant magic. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that's probably the biggest thing that she has going for her in regards to an argument for why she should be on the council. Yeah. But it's... Celine, Celine's bad news. Yeah. Celine is bad news. And immediately after this, once they decide to go with Hope... They, she, she resurrects a, a do you want to say it you go ahead <laughs> she resurrects a giant kaiju out of the uh, external gate mm-hmm. that they formed in Excalibur and X-Men right before Ten of Swords and of all of the references that I did not expect this book to pull from mm-hmm. <laughs> turning turning I think one of the highlights of Excalibur and that arc into a major violent plot point is extremely exciting yeah um so much fun i love it there are a couple of things we should we should go back just a little bit before uh before i dive into how i feel about sinister and and some of the things that he has to do with that um but we have a moment where hope comes into the council chamber and she says it has to be me um you know celine kind of leaves in a little bit of a you know whatever Mm -hmm. uh and then we have a lot more of sinister just kind of having this internal monologue about the vote they need to vote whether or not 
uh, hope is a good choice for for candidate to fill the empty seat. Um, and so as we see each of the council members voting, we have Sinister, you know, anticipating what their choice is going to be and then responding to to what this what needs to happen here. Um, and a fun subversion of expectations is as Sinister sits smug watching each of the council members vote the way that he knows that they will destiny having the singular vote that is against what he believes is about to happen um and this is another fun moment where you get to see the tension between these two characters yeah. that she looking right at him votes the opposite way of what he expects and then all of a sudden he's getting thrown off he's no longer in control of the situation the way he thinks he is and shout out to the art on this for any time it's showing destiny's face for her giving off so much attitude, mm-hmm. but it is a blank golden face. Right, and yeah. So, just so much is said <laughs> with literally the same shot of the face, just depending on how the rest of her posture is. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can feel the venom. You can feel the calling out of Sinister with every every moment. Right, and I love the panic that begins to set in as more and more council members vote no, including Sinister himself. <laughs> And once Destiny has made her move, then she, then Sinister ultimately has to change his own vote, um, but try to make it look like, oh, I, I just thought it over a little bit more, you know. And it, it really does feel like a chess game with these two characters, Destiny versus Sinister. He thinks that he's in control, and he, she is just totally changing it up on him every step it's, of the way. It's a chess game, but Mister Sinister is playing with with like checkers pieces mm-hmm. that he's made to look like chess pieces, which I think makes that so fun where they're, right. yeah, they're playing the same game, but both of them are playing by different rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, so before we get to like the big, big reveal of this issue, um, after they vote hope in Celine follows through on her promise mm-hmm. and resurrects the gate, we get one more page of immortal sinister secrets. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get 13, uh, secrets that might correspond uh, to some of, if not all, of the people on the council. Mm-hmm. They might not. Um, do you want to? Do you want to try and break these down, or do you want that to be another episode? What do you want to do with some um, of these immortal secrets? We we could try to break these down. We did sit there uh, upon reading this issue for the first time. We did try to get yeah. these character to get each of the Quiet Council members to line up with one of these secrets. But at this point, we really don't know what we these. We really have be. no idea. Um, it would be pure conjecture, just like yeah. Um, but it might be fun to go through and see if I we think- can. We're, we're already running a little long on time. Let's make that another episode. Right. So yeah. stay tuned for our, our Immortal immortal Sinister Secrets episodes where Riley and I guess incorrectly on, mm-hmm. on who these are about. But yeah, totally get them all right. Um, but that leads to basically our final moments. The, the, the kaiju arrives. Mm-hmm. Um, the external gate arrives. Everyone's upset. People are pissed at Sinister for mm-hmm. voting yes and swaying the vote instead of thinking it over. Mm-hmm. Um and then Sinister runs back to his lab where it's just, it's hit after hit in the lab. Um, I do, he's, he's talking about how he's experimented with mutant DNA for a long time. He's been able to master powers. Um, we see a, like, a, a furless cat mm-hmm. wearing a Cyclops visor. But then we also get the comment that he created a gun that shoots Scott Summer's eyeballs. 
Honestly, for me, this is the biggest reveal of the whole issue. I think so. That's where I, we're ending it. Thanks for listening. Immortal X, I'm kidding. That yeah, is not the I'm, biggest reveal. I want to see the sinister book in which he just goes and fights battles with the gun that fires Scott's eyeballs. Riley, I think we're going to. I think I, that's, I, that's coming soon. If I know Gillen's writing like I think I do, at <laughs> some point we are going to see... Maybe even the next issue, he's already holding a shotgun in several of these. Mm. I'm pretty sure we're going to see him fire optic blasts with, <laughs> with the gun. I would be so into it. Okay, so question though. And I, I think I know the answer because he's looking at a whole jar of eyes. Do the guns do the guns physically shoot Cyclops' eyeballs and like lasers spin around? Or does it shoot lasers out of the gun? I would say it probably it's probably the less fun answer, okay. but I think the one is it probably just uses the eyes to shoot lasers out of the Not, gun. Because like, you know, my if only you think thought... about how practical is it? You're in the middle of this battle, you know, you fire this eyeball that's just firing laser as it spins. Really, we don't want to argue practicality with a guy who has the biggest cape. Plumage. <sighs> Plumage. Plumage. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. All right. I, I am team. It shoots eyeballs and they spin around. I want to be on that team, but I just don't know how practical that would be. Uh, so leave, leave your thoughts in the in the comments of what what, what kind of eyeball on. gun what kind are of you eyeball gun it is. But the real reveal is not the eyeball gun, but the reason why Sinister knows what's been going on and why he believes this is what had to happen. <laughs> is because this guy has reverse engineered Moira McTaggart's mm -hmm. mutant gene and has at least one, two, three, four, five vats mm -hmm. of Moira clones at different ages and is then looking through their eyeballs. Oh, I think I may have answered my own question. Mm. I don't think those are, those aren't Scott Summers' eyes. I think he's looking through Moira's eyes in that because mm, he plugs that into the machine. Oh, yeah. 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 You're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Team Eyeball Gun. I am switching. It just shoots <laughs> lasers. But uh, Sinister's looking at Moiras, who have the ability to live through different lifelines and seeing what happens and then killing off the clone after mm -hmm. he thinks the lifeline's gone too far. Riley, how do you feel about this reveal? I, I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> it's I... so bonkers. It's so... I ha I would never in a million years have guessed that this was the direction it was going to go. No. Um, it kind of like... I appreciate Sinister so much for this reveal because it kind of... Sinister being this kind of goofball, like I always love reading him because he's so silly and overdramatic and things, but... This particular reveal setting him up as being like on a completely different he's, tier. He is like, so wicked yeah. and so immoral. The and the threat of this is so much bigger than anything I would have guessed this like goofy plumage covered character would would be by the end of this. The issue. fact that a character can make us both laugh so much and then make us pure shock and terror mm -hmm. and awe of like this is the best scariest plan that someone has come up with mm -hmm. is is amazing yeah and it keeps moira in play it keeps moira in play in a, in a really good way mm -hmm. in a fair way in a way where some recent moira progressing of her plot in in deaths of wolverine like don't get lessened but i yeah. feel like 
that story can still exist Mm -hmm. but i think this is where the true to me at least the true heart of what hickman established in house and powers continues to exist with moira and so many so many questions as you end this book you know we there's a reason why we've been able to talk at length about this book for the last almost 40 minutes i'm sure we're at 47 47 (laughs) but so many questions how many clones does he have is it just the five is it more how long has he been doing this how many clones has he experimented with already so that's a good question with with how long um do you think that he started how long do you think he's known about moira do you think he learned about it when the rest of the quiet council did that's that's my guess currently I think that's probably the case. Like he didn't have a Vata Moira clones this whole time or for I don't a while. Think so. I don't think so either. Um, yeah, at least we've been given no indication mm-hmm. that that was the that was the the way that it yeah. was. Um, it seems to be that the entire council found out about Moira at the same time, and if there is if there is a reality that Sinister knew about Moira in advance, we haven't gotten any kind. I. Of- I do kind of wonder if each of these books... I know Gillen has already gone on the record and saying that each book will kind of be told from a different council member's perspective. Mm-hmm. I wonder if... Not that each book will end on a reveal, is not what I'm saying, but if each book will show that council member how they have taken that information of Moira and the lifelines mm-hmm. and run with it. Right. And obviously we're seeing the most extreme version, but like Emma's running with it probably by like not trusting Xavier. Right. Like mm-hmm. I wonder if Xavier's running with it by searching for Moira. Like mm-hmm. what what did that look like? I'm curious. Right. Yeah. What a what an end to this issue. What an end to this issue and what an end I think to this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um I think the last point that I will end on, we started by talking about promotional images. I think it's only fair to talk about the other promotional images that Destiny of X really teased were images of a character and like three versions of themselves. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that is going to deal not only with maybe how Destiny sees the future, yeah, but also with the lifelines that Sinister is seeing. Yeah. And if that's how we're going to get to these other possibilities. Because that has not come into play yet in any of the no. books we've read. Yeah. Um, it's going to be really exciting to read this next issue. Very excited. Very excited. Um, I think our name was rightfully chosen mm-hmm. uh, after after this. But uh, well, thank you for listening. Uh, that is it. We're gonna we're gonna wrap it up. Um, this has been a long one. This has been a long thanks one. For uh, thanks for listening. If you made it this far, um, please uh, please rate, uh, please review, and please follow us on social. Uh, we hope to talk to you soon. Yeah. Goodbye. Take care. Thanks.